Well, for the past few months, we've been studying Matthew 11 and 12, as most of you know. And these chapters focus on the rejection of Jesus Christ by the nation of Israel. Chapter 11, we saw, had implicit rejection. John the Baptist began to doubt the cities where Jesus did most of his mighty works didn't repent. And Jesus then, in chapter 11, comforted himself in the Father's sovereign will. The Father had hidden the recognition of the Son, and Jesus called then all who were labored and heavy laden to come to him. And so Jesus was largely rejected by the cities and the people, but he called individuals to come to him. And so if a chapter 11 then had implicit rejection, chapter 12 had and has explicit rejection. The Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath traditions, And then Jesus said that he was Lord of the Sabbath. Then the Pharisees tested him on the Sabbath, asking if it was lawful to heal on that holy day. And they did that so that they might accuse him. And Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And in Matthew 12 and verse 14, it says, The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And then verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And so the Pharisees began planning on how they could murder Jesus. But the hostility in chapter 12 continues to escalate, and it really reaches its climax in our text for today. The Pharisees accused Jesus of doing his mighty works by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And they claim then that Jesus is empowered by Satan. And Jesus, in turn, shows that their accusation is absurd, And this is the text where Jesus warns about the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, this blasphemy is a frightful thing, and I think many of us have even struggled and wondered if we've committed this blasphemy before. This is a sin that Jesus says will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. In other words, this is a sin that will never be forgiven. And so we need to know about this sin, and we need to know how to avoid it. We need to think carefully about what our Lord says in these verses. And so let's look at it. We're going to cover Matthew 12, 22 to 32 this week. And then next week, we're going to look at, I'm going to kind of come back again at the unforgivable sin. And next week, or next time I'm here, we're going to look at verses, the rest of the context in verses 33 to 37. But for today, let's just read Matthew 12. 22 to 32. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now we're going to divide our text into four sections today. And first what we'll see is the amazing action in verses 22 and 23. The amazing action, number one. Again, verses 22. Not really so much to show us again the power of Jesus in casting out demons, but really just to set up the story of rejection. We're given... We're given very little information happens in, in this healing. And so look at verse 22. Then a demon oppressed, the ESV translates it a demon oppressed. Um, most of the other translations say a demon possessed, but really the same idea there. A, a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And so we've got a demon possessed, blind, and mute man, and he was brought to Jesus by someone we don't know who. And Jesus proceeded to heal the man, and we find out in verse 24 that this healing involved casting out the demon. Now, like always, Jesus' healing was instantaneous and complete. The blind man saw, the mute man spoke, the demon-possessed man, all the same man, the, the demon was cast out, and so he was cleansed of his demon. Now remember especially that this man was blind and the healing of blindness was a special sign of the Messiah's ministry. And so when Jesus wanted to reassure John in chapter 11 that that Jesus was the one who was to come, he pointed John to what Isaiah predicted. And you can kind of go back, look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. So John's doubting, Jesus is going to reassure John and he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. Remember, John was in prison, so the disciples of John came, and Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now these miracles, and especially the the giving of sight to the blind, was predicted by Isaiah in Isaiah 35, verse 5, as well as uh, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And so John's disciples had seen Jesus do those things, all of those things that Jesus listed that very day. And so um, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 4 and 5. And I'll just read that for you. Isaiah 35, 4 and 5 says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And so God is going to come, Isaiah is telling us. And then verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus is God coming, as as Jesus is encouraging uh, John the Baptist. Isaiah 61 Verse one also, this is the, uh, this is an English translation of the Greek Septuagint. 
which is the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek and then translated for me into English. This is Isaiah 61.1. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. So the Spirit of the Lord has anointed this one, the Messiah. That's what the anointed one is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the broken in heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And so again, I just wanted to remind us that the recovery of sight for the blind was a unique sign of the Messiah's ministry. No one before and and actually no one after, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, cured blind people the way that Jesus did. At least no one besides Jesus did this according to the Old and the New Testaments. And so the Spirit empowers this anointed one to do all of these things that we just read about. And so Matthew's focus, though, here in, in chapter 12 is not so much on the healing. All we're told is that this man was healed so that he spoke and saw and he was cleansed of this demons. But however this happened, it, it caught the attention of the crowd. And so in verse 23, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And so the people were amazed. And that word there, amazed, is a very strong word. It means to lose one's mind or to be out of one's senses. And it's used only here in Matthew. And so something about what's happening here in this moment catches the crowd's attention. And, and they it really blows their mind, as we might say in English. But Matthew, again, doesn't really tell us much about what's happening here. He's just setting up the story. But if you think about it, if there was a blind man who couldn't speak, how would you even know that this guy was demon-possessed? And so something unique and creepy and whatever is happening with this man, and the crowd sees this healing, and they are, they're blown away. They, they can't believe what Jesus has done. And it was so significant that it says that all the crowd or all the people were amazed. And the people began to ask, If this could be the Christ, if this could be the son of David, the Messiah. And the way they phrase that question shows that there's some uncertainty here. We we might translate it this way. This isn't the son of David, is it? And so they're, they're, they're wondering, but they're not sure. They're uncertain about this and they're, and they're wondering, could this be? No, it, it couldn't. And so they're not sure, but they're wondering if Jesus could be the Messiah. And in fact, they continued to be amazed and they were, they were saying, literally, they were continuously saying what we, what they were saying in verse 23 there. And so they're, they're going on. Could this be the Messiah? This couldn't be the Messiah, could it? And that's what likely prompted the Pharisees to respond in verse 24. And so that's number two in our outline. We see, secondly, we see the absurd accusation in verse 24, the absurd accusation, verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And so the Pharisees come up with a a different answer. And notice that it's the Pharisees and it's plural. And so they responded to the crowd's question. They're kind of united together in this thing. Now they couldn't deny Jesus's miracle working power. See, they all knew that Jesus had supernatural power. And there's, there was really no denying that. And so they don't try to deny it. The crowd knew. 
The, the Pharisees knew, everybody knew that Jesus had the power to heal and that he had the power to cast out demons. But instead of recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, they came up with a different answer. And perhaps this was part of their plot that we already read about in verse 14. Remember in verse 14 of chapter 12, they wanted to destroy Jesus. And so they conspired against him and they decided to say that Jesus got his power from Beelzebul. Now Mark's version of the same story is in Mark chapter 3. And why don't you just turn there for a moment and let's look at how Mark described the situation and what they said. So this is Mark chapter 3 and verse 22. Again, Mark 3.22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And they were also saying, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And so they're saying he's possessed and he's doing what he's doing by the power of the prince of demons who is known as Beelzebul, which is another way of describing Satan. And by attributing his works to Satan, the Pharisees can acknowledge that Jesus was a worker of supernatural power without accepting that he is the Messiah. But even more than that, they could scare the crowds away from him and perhaps even turn the crowds against Jesus. Now the penalty for sorcery was death. And if Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul and working magic under demonic influence, he would be worthy of death. And so this accusation is deadly serious. And if it's true, Jesus would be in danger. But of course, this is a ridiculous claim. Jesus wasn't casting out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus wasn't possessed by Beelzebul. And Jesus is going to answer this accusation by making three arguments in the next verses. He's going to show that the Pharisees' accusation is absurd. And that's going to be number three in our outline, and I called it the answering argumentation. The answering argumentation. Jesus is going to answer and he's going to give some arguments for why what they are saying is absurd. And so he breaks down the Pharisees' accusation piece by piece and he shows it to be utter nonsense. Now, when I was in seminary, my apologetics instructor used to take this, take his class through this text and show how to answer objections to the Christian faith. And so the way that Jesus does this is really quite amazing as he breaks this down. Apologetics has to do with defending the faith or making a defense of the faith. And to kind of see something about apologetics, this is just a little aside here. I want you to go to 1 Peter and chapter 3. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's just think for a few minutes here about defending the faith and the way that our Lord defends himself against the Pharisees' accusation. So 1 Peter chapter 3 and really verse 15 is really such a critical one in, in, as far as defending the faith goes. But let's start at verse 14. Peter says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And we can just stop there for now. So when facing hostility, Peter instructs us to honor Christ in our hearts and really uphold him high in our hearts as the holy Christ. Hold him as Lord and as holy. And we're to be ready, always ready, to make a defense. And that's exactly what Christ does in our text. He upholds himself as the Messiah, and he defends his power by showing that it's not satanic, that it's by the power of the Spirit of God that Jesus casts out demons. And so Jesus shows his critics that their explanation, or or probably really better, that their rejection of him makes no sense. And it's not consistent. In other words, what they're saying doesn't work. It doesn't fit with reality. And so he tears down their false worldview, showing them that it makes no sense. And sometimes that's what we need to do as well when we make a defense of the faith. We need to show our persecutors, show those who are against us and resisting our ministry that Christianity is true and that what they claim to believe doesn't actually fit with reality. Now, Peter says that we're to do this with gentleness and respect. And so we must be gentle and kind to to our opponents. But sometimes, just like what our Lord does here, we need to tear down the false ideas and the philosophies and the false teachings and the false worldviews of those who are against Christ. And we need to show them that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with reality. And so sometimes as Christians, we need to make a defense. We need to confront error. And we do this again with kindness and with truth. And when we do this, it's always a loving thing to do. Whereas ignoring error or allowing it to continue unchecked is neither kind nor loving. And so sometimes we need to argue. Not by being argumentative, but we need to argue in the sense of giving reasons and evidence for what is true and showing what is false to be false. And so sometimes we need to argue and we need to do it with kindness and with gentleness, but we need to do it firmly and truthfully. And so that was our little aside on apologetics. Sometimes we need to convince people that what what the scripture says and show them why they are wrong. And that's just following our Lord when we do that. And so let's continue on. Let's go back here. If we've gone somewhere else, let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, and and we can just stop there. And so Jesus knows the thoughts of the Pharisees. And whether he knew this because they were speaking it out loud and he heard them, or whether he knew this in some kind of supernatural way, Matthew doesn't say. But knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And so Jesus begins his defense with a statement about kingdoms, cities, and houses. And it's a general truth, it's just a statement of truth, that if those cities, kingdoms, or houses are divided, they will be laid waste, or they will be made desolate. And that word there, translated laid waste, is kind of closely connected to a word that means desert or wilderness or a a desolate or deserted place. And so if you think about a country in the midst of a civil war, right? Think about a civil war happening, countries divided against itself, that country won't prosper. And the people that live in that country will likely leave, or at least many of them will leave. 
And such a kingdom, if there's a civil war going on, that kingdom cannot stand. It's going to become an uninhabitable war zone. And the same thing really applies on, on the smaller scale in a city or a household. If it's divided, it won't be able to stand firm or it won't be able to hold its ground. It won't be able to make advances against an enemy because it's too busy fighting against itself. And that's really just a general principle that holds true for any group of people anywhere. If they're fighting against one another, they will not succeed against others. And now Jesus then, in verse 26, applies this to Satan and his kingdom. And he says in verse 26, And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And so if Satan is empowering Jesus to cast out Satan's demons, then Satan is really divided against himself. He would be then fighting himself. He'd be undermining his own work. He'd be undoing what he was doing. And so Jesus asked, well, then how then will his kingdom stand? And of course, the answer is it wouldn't stand. It wouldn't work. Now, perhaps, and, and if we think about it a little bit, if you just kind of think about this, perhaps Satan would cast out demons maybe here and there to deceive people. But what we need to remember in the context is that Jesus was going throughout Galilee, casting out every demon out of every demon-possessed person in the land. And we saw that, remember, in Matthew 4.23 and then again in Matthew 9.35. I'll just read Matthew 4.23 for you. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem, and even from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is going throughout all the land, casting out all the demons, healing every kind of sickness. And so it makes no sense in that kind of a context to say that Jesus is casting out demons by Beelzebul. You see, what's really happening here is that Jesus has been overcoming Satan. He's exercising his authority over Satan and he's showing his power over Satan time and time again. And so Satan is wiser than to empower his servants to fight against himself. You know, he knows this general principle that Jesus shared in verse 25 and Satan wouldn't operate in that manner. Satan fights against God. He doesn't fight against his own servants. And so that's kind of the first argument that Jesus lays down. And then secondly, in verse 27, Jesus moves into another argument. So first, it's absurd to think that Satan's fighting against himself. And now secondly, look at verse 27. And if he ca- sorry, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And so Jesus sets up a hypothetical situation. Okay, he says, okay, let's say, let's say it's true. Let's say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Let's assume your accusation is true. Then what does that say about your sons? Now, sons doesn't necessarily mean children here. It's not necessarily the children of the Pharisee. It's talking about those who are closely related or connected with the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees had disciples and their, their disciples had ministries where they cast out demons. And so Jesus is saying, was that by Beelzebul? Would the Pharisees be willing to say that all demon-casting ministry was empowered by Satan? 
And the answer is, of course not. The Pharisees' own sons, their close associates, would then judge that position. The Pharisees' accusations, in other words, are so out of sync with reality that even their own disciples will say, that doesn't work. We cast out demons. We don't do it by Beelzebul. We do it by God's power. And so how could you say that, you know, in other words, if you judge Jesus that way, you're judging us, and then I'm going to judge you, right? That's what it means. Therefore, they will be your judges. They're going to say, your argument doesn't hold. And so Jesus says, even the Pharisees will acknowledge that this argument is a bad argument. And so it doesn't work. Satan's not fighting against Satan. The Pharisees acknowledge as much when they approve other exorcism ministries. And then Jesus begins a third argument then, and starting in verse 28. And so in verse 28, he says, but if it is by the power or if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus sets up another option. And really, when you think about it, there's, there's really only two options here. Either Jesus is operating by the power of God or he's operating by the power of Satan. There's really only two sources of supernatural power, God and Satan. And Jesus is bringing them then to the only logical conclusion. And if it's true that Jesus casts out demons by the Spirit of God, then it's also true that everything Jesus has been preaching up to this point is also true. And so Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus is the King of Israel. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand just as Jesus has been preaching. And in fact, here Jesus says that the kingdom has come upon you. And that word there means that it has arrived or it's it's reached you. And so this is the strongest language in Matthew for the presence of the kingdom. See, the king of Israel, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is standing there before those religious leaders and he's offering the kingdom promised to their fathers on the basis of repentance. Remember Matthew 3, 2 and Matthew 4, 17 where Jesus' sermons, Jesus' ministry was preaching Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the power of that kingdom and the message of that kingdom and even the king of that kingdom has reached these men. Satan's kingdom is being overthrown. Jesus is taking over Satan's domain and he's undoing what Satan was doing. And all of Jesus's mighty works have shown that he can undo the effects of the fall and that he has the power to establish this kingdom. And so at this very point, the kingdom program comes to a critical junction. It's reached Israel, but it's being rejected. And never again in this gospel does Jesus say that the kingdom is near or that it has come or that it has arrived. And so this is a critical moment here. This is the final rejection. This is the final rejection. And from this point on, really everything changes as we're going to see. Now this final rejection is kind of brought to a, a fulfillment when, when Jesus is crucified on the Passover day. But really everything of their rejection kind of comes to a head right here in this text. This is a, a serious moment in the Gospel of Matthew. And so the kingdom has come upon these people. They're rejecting it. And then in verse 29, Jesus goes on to explain what happens when he casts out a demon by the Spirit of God. And so he says in verse 29, Or how can someone... Enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods 
unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And so Satan is the strong man. And his house is really speaking about his territory, his domain. Verse 26 called it his kingdom. Satan has a kingdom on this earth. Colossians 1.13 calls it the domain of darkness. In Acts 26.18, Jesus talks about turning people from the power of Satan to God and turning people from darkness to light. 2 Corinthians 4.4 talks about um, Satan as the God of this world with a small g, the one who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. In 1 John 5.19, it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so Satan is the ruler of this present evil age, and he's a strong ruler. He's a powerful ruler. The unbelieving world is captive to the desires of the flesh, and in that captivity, they follow Satan's will. Now, of course, Satan's dominion over this present evil age fits together under God's sovereignty, and uh, we're not going to harmonize that today for everyone. But the point here is that Satan is a strong enemy. Satan is a powerful enemy, and no mere man can handle such a foe. We sang about that this morning when we sang about the um, uh, a mighty fortress is our God. That if we would, in our own strength, confided, our, we would lose. But because of Christ, who can overcome Satan, we do not lose. And so the, the, the point again is that Satan is a powerful enemy and Jesus compares him to a strong man who lives in his house. He's guarding his house. And the kingdoms of this world are under Satan's power. And in a special sense, those who are demon possessed are his goods in a special way. They belong to Satan. They're Satan's territory. And the only way to plunder Satan's goods or to cast out the, these demons out of these people that Satan really holds in a special way is that Satan first has to be bound. Somebody has to deal with Satan before they can deal with his goods. And so you have to deal with the master of the house before you can take his things. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He overcame Satan and he cast out his demons. He overcame him by the power of the spirit of God. And he bound Satan and he plundered his house. Now, during the millennial kingdom, Jesus is going to bind Satan again more permanently and he's going to seal him in a sealed pit so that he won't deceive the nations any longer. And you can kind of see that if you want in Revelation 20 verses 1 to 10. But what we've been seeing in Jesus' ministry then is just a foretaste of what he's going to do in the millennial kingdom. And so Jesus is more powerful than the devil. The Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus is more powerful than the devil. And this power that Jesus has shown should have led the Pharisees to recognize that he was the Messiah. The Father was going to pour His Spirit on the Messiah. The Messiah was going to be the anointed one. He's going to be anointed with the Spirit. And He was going to do the miracles that we already read about in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Also, Matthew's pointed us to Isaiah 42, which again spoke about the Spirit coming on the Messiah. And so instead of seeing what was happening and accepting Jesus as the Messiah, instead of repenting, the Pharisees said that Jesus was working by the power of Satan. And Jesus answered that charge, showing that it was absurd. Jesus pointed them to the, the true power behind his mighty works. It was the power of the Holy Spirit who had anointed him for those works. And that was Jesus' answering argumentation. And now, 
In verses 30 to 32, we're going to see Jesus's alarming admonition. Jesus's alarming admonition, number four. So it's the alarming admonition. Again, verses 30 to 32. And the first part of this is in verse 30. And I want to spend most of our time here looking at this. And then again, like I said, next time we're going to come back and hopefully I can, we can do a little bit more with verse 31 and 32. But the first part of this alarming admonition is in verse 30. Look at it there. It says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, this is a very important statement. The Pharisees need to hear this and the crowd needs to hear this. And and really, I'd say we need to hear this. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. Now the Pharisees, they were obviously not with Jesus. They were against him. They were accusing him of being empowered by Satan. They were trying to influence the crowd against him. They were even conspiring to have him put to death. And their charge again was serious. The the penalty for sorcery would have been death. And so if Jesus was operating by Beelzebul, he would have deserved death. But not everyone there that day was with the Pharisees. You see, many people were there. Now, they they hadn't become disciples of Christ. Perhaps they were unsure about his claims to be the Christ, or perhaps they, they just really didn't care. Maybe they were indifferent. Maybe they were apathetic. Maybe they were undecided about Jesus, but they weren't, in their minds, against him, but they hadn't joined with him to become his disciples. And such people would have thought of themselves, we're not against Jesus. You know, we have no problem with Jesus. Have you ever kind of talked to an unbeliever like that? I don't have any problem with Jesus. You go ahead and believe Jesus, but I, I just don't, and I'm not gonna. A lot, of, a lot of times, you know, I have, I'm thinking of specific people even in my family that have told me, I have no problem with Jesus. I just won't follow him and serve him, and I don't believe that he is God. And so many people think in that way. They, they've got no problem with Jesus. They're not going to become a follower of his, but they kind of think of themselves as neutral. Right? If you talk to people like this, they think of themselves as neutral. They certainly wouldn't say that they're against Jesus in any way. They're just kind of doing their own thing and different to him. But Jesus here leaves no room for neutrality. If you are not with him, you are against him. If you are not with Jesus, you are in the domain of darkness and you are under the power of Satan. Now, we don't think like that, perhaps, but really there's only two sides. You're either on one side or you're on the other side. You're either for Jesus, you're either with Jesus, you're a disciple of his, you're living according to his commandments, you're learning his ways, or you're not. If you're not a disciple of his, you are on the other side. And on the other side, that means you are with the devil. You are promoting the devil's purposes. Now, again, you might say you might be here today and you might say, I'm not a disciple, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not with the devil. I'm not against Christ. But really the truth is, if you have not joined yourself to Jesus Christ by repenting of your sin and trusting in him for salvation, you are doing the devil's will and you are against Christ. If you're not gathering with Christ, you are scattering. And that's either a a farming or a sheep herding metaphor there. You're either bringing in the harvest with Christ, serving him as a disciple, gathering his sheep, or else Jesus says you are scattering, you are working against him. And so again, either we are working with Christ and for him, 
or we are not, which means we are working against him. And so there's no neutral ground according to Jesus. And so I would ask you today, if that's you today, which side are you on? You got to think, which side are you on? There's no neutrality. You are either for him or you are not for him, which means you are against him. Are you gathering with Christ? Are you scattering his sheep? Are you serving Christ and fulfilling the Great Commission? Or are you serving the devil by not serving Christ? There really is no third option here. And so that's kind of the first, um, whatever it is, what we, what, what, whatever point we're on here, that is the first part. And the second part here, the Lord's uh, uh, alarming admonition part two, is this mention of the unforgivable sin, verses 31 and 32. It says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now the two lines here, verse 31 and 32, the, the first part of each line really goes together, and, and they're there to set up the second line. So when Jesus says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, he says that to contrast it with this sin that will not be forgiven. Every sin will be forgiven if and only if a person repents of it and comes to Christ for forgiveness. That's We, we don't want to miss that part even though Jesus doesn't say that here. This is just set there to contrast with this unforgivable sin. In other words, what I'm trying to say is you, you can't take the first half of verse 31 and 32 on their own. They really go together. The good news is of this whole thing is that every sin, every blasphemy, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man can be forgiven. And so if you're here today and you've been against Christ your whole life, you can be forgiven of it all today if you come to Him and repent of your sin and trust in Christ to make you righteous with God. Every sin, every blasphemy, nobody has sinned too much. There's forgiveness available for everyone. No matter what your sin You can have all your sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. That's the good news for each and every one of us. That's awesome news because all of us have sinned and all of us need forgiveness so that we can have a relationship with the Holy God. You see, without forgiveness, we cannot have a relationship with God. Without forgiveness, we can't dwell with God in heaven. Without forgiveness, we go to hell to pay the eternal penalty for our sins. But Jesus says, every sin will be forgiven. If if you're a great sinner, know that you have a greater Savior who will forgive every sin in Jesus Christ. Now that is every sin except the one that he talks about here. The one sin that won't be forgiven is this blasphemy against the Spirit. Also called speaking against the Spirit in verse 32. Now, I think for me, at least two questions immediately come to mind here is, number one, what is this blasphemy of the Spirit? And number two, why will it not be forgiven? And once we understand those, then maybe we can begin to see how this applies to us. So let's ask this and look at this. What is this blasphemy against the Spirit? And the first thing to say about this, I think, is that the text doesn't actually say what it is. It doesn't say specifically what this blasphemy against the Spirit is. Blasphemy is disrespectful or slanderous speech. And in this case, this disrespectful or slanderous speech is against 
God the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 31 begins with the word, therefore. And so there's a connection between this blasphemy and what's happening in the context. Therefore, I tell you, very solemnly, therefore, I tell you, there's this connection here between what's going on in the context and this sin. Now, one of the things I noticed this week as I studied this is that Jesus doesn't actually say with certainty that the Pharisees had committed this sin. But I think we have to assume either that they had committed this sin or that at least some of the Pharisees had committed this sin or perhaps that they were close to committing this sin and Jesus is warning them of the danger that they are very close to committing this sin. He warns them again in verse 36 that they will give an account for every careless word that they speak on the day of judgment. And so at the, at the least, they've come perilously, perilously, that's a harder word to say. It's easy to write, but hard to say. Peri, peri, I'm, they have come dangerously close to blaspheming the Spirit. I'll have to remember that I can't say that word. Eh? <laughs> Maybe we'll study it next week or something. So they're dangerously close to blaspheming, blaspheming, that's hard too, uh, the spirit. So if they hadn't already done it, they are, they are close to doing this. Now the context here is extremely unique and I think we need to note that. And it's, it's really virtually unrepeatable. What's going on here in the context is we have the son of God, Jesus the Messiah, on earth as the son of man. Now he's fully human and fully God. And so the divine person of the son has added to himself a fully human nature. And so God, the son is veiled in human flesh, but he's also revealed by the work of the Holy spirit through him. And by the spirit, Jesus has shown who he is by doing these amazing miracles in the power of the spirit. Now the Pharisees, they can't deny any of those miracles But they've decided that instead of accepting Jesus as the Messiah, they're going to say that he does this by the power of Satan. Remember what they were saying in Mark, uh, again, Mark 3.22, that he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And so that is blasphemy. They are, and in that moment, they are slandering the spirit. But the question is, At what point is this blasphemy that they're speaking here the blasphemy of the Spirit? In other words, is this the blasphemy of the Spirit already or is this just approaching the blasphemy of the Spirit, a point at which there's no forgiveness available? And so at what point does the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit apply? Or or we can maybe ask, when does it become unforgivable? And so is the idea here that if one continues to attribute Jesus' works to Satan, is it unforgivable because, maybe in this case, because such a one will never come to Christ for forgiveness because they can't come to him because they think he's from Satan? And so maybe is that the idea here, that if one continues in this sin, that it's unforgivable because they'll never come to Christ for forgiveness? And so you will, you know, that, that is true. You will never be forgiven unless you come to Christ. But it, it would seem that Jesus maybe has more in mind here. But really beyond that, it's difficult to get more precise. You see, scripture tells us that you can resist the Holy Spirit and be forgiven. 
You can grieve the spirit even as a believer and you're still forgiven. You shouldn't do that, but you, but it's possible. Paul warns us not to do that. Jesus doesn't mean here that any word ever spoken against the spirit will result in an unforgivable state. Many, many people have spoken against the spirit and been forgiven. And so we have to keep this really close to the context. But, but honestly, I, I have more questions for you than I have answers. I think we need to stick really close to the context. I think we need to see that, that this sin isn't actually clearly defined for us. And Matthew's purpose here as he gives us this, I think is not so much for us to understand the unforgivable sin as it is for us to recognize that these Pharisees have committed a grave sin and everything from this point on changes. Now, on that basis, and just kind of trying to stick close to the context, I believe that this blasphemy means seeing, and, and I mean personally being there and seeing Jesus's miracles and hearing his preaching and then attributing it to Satan. And I, I think this would have, would have to be maintained for some undefined period of time. You'd have to be kind of settled in this speaking against Jesus as though he were the devil. Also, as I, as I kind of look at this, I, I see, look at, if you look at verse 33, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. And so Jesus, first of all, argues against what they've um, accused him of. And then he, he warns them about this unforgivable sin. And then he almost calls them to repentance by saying, make the tree good. And it's fruit good. And so I, I even hear, I think there's a possibility that some of the people there that day who had called Jesus Beelzebul, I think there, there could be a possibility that even they would be forgiven. Because Jesus seems to be arguing them out of that view. And so what I guess I'm not sure about is at what point would this sin be considered as having been committed? And at what point does this become unforgivable? And I don't think just the mere saying of this is what's, what would be regarded as the unforgivable sin. I, I think, I think one would need to kind of entrench themselves in this view. And when you do that, there's really no possibility of forgiveness because you'll never come to Christ if you think he's the devil. Now, the second question kind of relates to this. Why will blasphemy of the Holy Spirit not be forgiven? And I think I've already kind of answered it there. It's not going to be forgiven because nobody is able to come to Christ for forgiveness if they think that he is demonic. And so what you've done in this moment, what the Pharisees have done, or those who have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is that they have turned good to evil and evil to good. They've turned everything exactly upside down. They've called God the devil and uh, there's no forgiveness. There's no really turning from that. Now, when we come back in two weeks, when I'm back here, I'm going to kind of try to look at this a little bit more and cover the context from verses 33 to 37, which I think is also important as we consider what is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But until we come back next time, what I want to do is I just want to assure you that this is a sin that's very specific to the context and it's a, a sin that relates specifically to this day when the Pharisees rejected Christ and accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. And I think that this is a sin then 
that couldn't be committed today. We, we don't have Christ here doing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't believe this is a sin that could, could be committed today. And if you're concerned about having committed this sin and you're seeking to follow Christ, you are doing, I just want you to know, you're doing the exact opposite of what this sin is. And so if you desire to follow Christ as your Lord and you believe that he is the Son of God, then you are, um, that, that is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so you can take comfort in that, that you haven't committed this sin because if you had, you would want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would be the devil to you, whereas you are going, man, I hope I didn't commit this sin because I want to follow Christ and I love him and I want to be with him in heaven. And so that's not speaking about you at all. But if you are here today and you're not a disciple of Christ, I do want to end with this warning to you going back to verse 30. Jesus said again there, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, I want to urge you to decide for Christ today. You need to come to Jesus Christ because there is no neutrality according to Jesus. You're maybe being raised in a Christian home for the kids and, and maybe you haven't decided that you're going to follow Christ. Well, don't delay. Don't be neutral. You aren't neutral. You are against Christ even now. And so you need to repent and come to him for forgiveness of sins. Because he himself is the one who's going to judge every single person in the world. And if you are here today and you have come to Christ, then the good news is that all of your sins have been forgiven in him. If you are in Christ, you are counted righteous in him. And that is good news for each and every one of us. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text, difficult text on the unforgivable sin. Pray that you'd give us comfort for those of us who maybe struggle with assurance of our salvation and wonder if we've committed this sin. Pray for those who are here, maybe who haven't come to you, Father, that you would convince them of their sin and convict them to come to Christ. Draw them to yourself. For those of us that have, Father, we pray that you would help us to make a defense of the faith, that you would help us to um, gather with Christ, to serve him well, and to honor him with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.